0: you protecting that farmland to where you can't put houses on it. You've got to keep it in farmland. But you wouldn't have to do those things if farming was profitable enough to mm. keep it in farming in the first place.
1: This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Rex Ogden farmed near Castle Rock in southwest Washington. And he shares all of the different things that he's done in his past chicken farming, hay farming, working with beef. And he shares his wisdom on how to preserve the future of family farming here in Washington State. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, journeying all over Washington State to get to know the real people behind our food. So talk about you. You say you've done just about everything.
0: Yep. When in, I in farming, then well, let's put it this way: when I graduated high school, I was raised on a farm. Yeah. Where at? In Castle Rock. Okay. And it was, I'm the fourth generation to live in that house. My kids Hmm. are the fifth generation there. So we've been there for a while. Yeah. And when I graduated high school, my plan was to be a truck driver. I was going to be a long haul truck driver. Well, I kind of screwed up my driving record. So (laughs) I had to do other things. So I went to work in the woods. I set chokers and I ran skidder and cat. Did lots of different things. But my love was always that farm, which is a terrible farm if you want to farm because it's on a hill. Mm. And it's steep ground. But I wanted to keep it. And because it had been in the family that long. Right. So I bought it from my dad. And if you believe this, that was back in 1970. Uh, something anyway. <laughs> I graduated in 1970, so it would have been 73, 74, somewhere, yep. for $20,000. Now, that piece of ground, 50 acres, is worth a whole lot more than that now. Wow. And Dad never figured that I'd pay He'd live long enough for me to pay it off. But when he died, we were short two payments of paying that off.
1: Oh, no kidding. So,
0: anyway, <clears throat> I always had to work out to support it. We raised cattle, which gave us our beef. And the cattle always paid the taxes. We always figured mm. that. There was nothing to mm. pay the taxes. And we were just raising beef. So uh, I always had to work out. So I worked in the woods. I got my record cleaned up, and I drove log truck for a while. I learned to drive on a log truck. And then mm. I hauled some chicken feed for two and a half years because there's a lot of chicken farmers in that valley back then. Mm-hmm. But the beef never paid the bill, so I had to work out.
1: Yeah. Well, Well and that's the story for so many farmers, too. It is. You know.
0: It got to the point where every job I found was in Timbuktu, and you were traveling a lot. You were gone from home a lot, and I said, i got to have a better way than that. So I decided, I'm going to build me a chicken house and raise chickens, hmm. and you can make it on that. And so I had an old D4 cat, and I cut me out a nice long piece of ground that was flat, and we built us a chicken house. Two-story building. I could raise 30,000 chickens per batch in that. And at the time, you raised five batches a year.
1: What year about was this?
0: Uh, Well, the first ones went in in 1989. Okay. In the spring of 1989, we put the first birds in there. And I did enjoy doing that. It gave me the freedom to participate in the kids' sports. Uh, I coached one of the boys in soccer my wife coached another one of the boys soccer teams we got to go to all the kids wrestling matches because you could adjust your schedule you because you were at
1: home too because
0: i was at home working for myself yeah and i did enjoy that but then it got to the point where they kept cutting the pay and Mm -hmm. we weren't making it as good and Mm -hmm. finally i'd had all i could take of I, don't, I won't name the name of the company, but it's the major one in the Northwest, yeah. which just got bought out. Yeah. And I told him I had everything paid off. I didn't owe a dime to anybody. And so I said, bye-bye. I quit. Mm. And I went and got my CDL back and went back to driving truck. No kidding. In the last 10 years, and I drove truck, and then I retired. So while I was driving truck, my wife took care of the cows. She did all the feeding. Mm. Uh, anything major I'd help out with. But, you know, I was gone every day, five days a week. Yeah. But it was local. I was home every night almost. That's
1: nice that you weren't so, long hauling and gone for two weeks. Know, and
0: I driving low, boy. And the farthest away from home I went, we went to North Dakota and picked up a crane one time, and we went to California. Actually, I went to Barstow, California once. Wow. That's as far away from home as I ever got. So. Yeah. I like that.
1: So back to farming chickens.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. How, how does, first, how
1: does that work? You talked about building the barn. You had 30,000 birds.
0: Yeah. What's the day-to-day on that? It only took about two hours of work when the birds were in there, Mm -hmm. because all your feed is automatic. And also, you don't buy the birds. The company provides them. The -hmm. company provides the feed. You provide the labor, the water, the electricity, and all that stuff. And... You could actually do it in about two hours. You had to walk through twice a day and make sure that everything was working the way it should. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, like I said, I had lots of time to do other things. And yeah. so then I got into the custom haying business. Uh, I had enough equipment to, and I made small square bales. I didn't make any big bales. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of demand for custom hay it, and there still is people have yep. five acres and nothing to put it up with exactly but i got tired of wearing out my equipment on somebody else's hay so yeah beans I retired we cut back on the farm as a matter of fact at one time we were renting a farm it's north of us about 10 miles at a, a place called oliqua and we were running a total of about 30 brood cows hmm. now we've cut back we're just at home and I have well right now I have 9 I want to keep 10 cows and that's my max the barn holds enough hay to feed them and
1: yeah so you retired but you're still farming
0: I retired but I almost still farming <laughs> I'm still
1: fascinated by this this chicken farming cuz I really don't know much about it I haven't been around it much but it used to be a big deal up where I'm from uh-huh. as well up in in Whatcom County and and a lot of other places as well in fact my grandpa, when he was young, his first job was driving chicken trucks. He was hauling either chickens or eggs oh, right. from up there down into Seattle. Right, right. Uh, and this was in the late 50s. Yeah. So back what you were doing, late 80s into the 90s, this is what you're describing is this contract farming kind yes. of stuff, right? Yes. And, and I've been hearing a lot of negative stuff like out of the Midwest where that's still a very common thing. About it, that process.
0: It's getting bigger and bigger. They want to consolidate more and more, and they're vertically integrated, which means they have the chicken, the feed, the egg, the processing plant, and mm. the distribution to the grocery store. And that's the way it's getting. Why do what, they do it that way? Economics. They can do it cheaper. When I first started, actually, it was for Linden Farms, yep. which gets the name from up there, your area. Where I'm from, yeah. But it was the Blozier Boys, which were in Oregon City. Mm-hmm. and But they had that name. And then they went bankrupt, and Foster Farms bought them out, and I raised for them.
1: So, so. doing that with those kinds of pressures is that a doable thing for people anymore you hear about people getting
0: trapped in that is that a is that a thing yes they get trapped in it because they always come out with well those water line water system isn't good enough so you need to change and buy this one and put it in so there you're in debt Mm. to the bank and so you can't walk away you can't change and that's why we had gotten everything paid off so Mm. i could walk away (laughs)
1: So there were things that you had to pay off that oh, yeah. you invested in your yep. own property. Did you owe we, the company money no, on I, different things? I, or had, how does that work? I
0: had enough money salted away that I yeah. could could pay these off. We had to buy all new water lines, mm. and they said it's because uh, government regulations say that you can't have water in a cup because it'd get contaminated and yet the ones we got they're nipple drinkers but they have a cup underneath to catch the drip (laughs) and the bird drips it drinks that drip yeah so you know what i mean Uh, it it doesn't make any sense
1: yeah because somebody in an office building somewhere is making the rule that's right for a good intention i guess to you know foodborne illness this kinds of things That,
0: that was their point
1: but then when it's actually implemented it doesn't work the way they claim it will
0: yeah the person on the ground doing it says wait a minute you know we can see that (laughs) yeah yeah that's (laughs) so only
1: a couple hours a day i would imagine though there were probably a lot of other things that you had to do to the property though
0: well that's when i could do haying and all that stuff taking care of cows and we got to where we were uh intensive grazing Mm -hmm. moving the cows every day or every other day yeah and to me that's being a grass farmer, yeah. And your cows are just harvesting your crop for you. Yeah. And so the more grass you can raise, the more cows you can raise. Yeah.
1: That's. I think more and more people, it seems, are starting to get an appreciation for that system, mm-hmm. grazing cattle, mm-hmm. and how that's important for a lot of things, including soil health.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, why were you doing it at that, at that time? I mean, how long ago was this when you started intensive grazing? Well, I started grazing?
0: doing that maybe thirty years ago. Wow. We get. Used to get the magazine called the Washington Farmer Stockman. Mm-hmm. And then it, it kept getting consolidated to where it was the Western Farmer Stockman. Yeah. <laughs> and But uh, uh, I read articles in that where I first got started on. It. Well, then you didn't see anything about it for a long time. And all of a sudden, here it's come back. Yeah, now they call it mob grazing. Yeah. But it's the same thing that we were doing back then.
1: So explain how that works Well, when you're raising beef. You,
0: you move the cows. You try not to abuse the ground. So you try uh-huh. to move them every day and and rest what they were just on and move to the next piece and to the next piece. And if your grass gets ahead of you, <clears throat> I made me a special deal. I used poly fencing, which is that plastic stuff you see. Yep. And I made me a deal with a two before and a pulley and a pulley and a window weight and a pulley so that I could pull about. 20 feet of slack, mm. and then use rod posts. And you can move these just three feet, yep. and the cows lead underneath there. And they never did tromp down the, the grass right. and let it go to waste. And you'd move that sometimes two or three times a day. Yep. And then when you finally run out of stuff, then you'd move it far enough. And then you got to bring your back fence up. And uh, I think it, it, I wouldn't say it doubled my forage you know, yield, but yeah. it increased it. And then
1: that's what I hear. And there, it seems like the science, they're still learning more things yeah. about why that actually works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, was there a reason given of what, what the mechanism was or what, because well, it, it is about an intensive grazing yeah. too, where they're, yeah. they're all on one piece. They're grazing it pretty heavily yeah.
0: and then resting. But, but then you get them off of it and it can recover. Yeah. And another thing is they say that when you first graze it off, if you look, even like mowing your lawn, there's stuff that comes back up just that little bit. Yep. Well, that's the the uh, starch that's stored in the roots comes mm. back up to give that so that it can start using photosynthesis. Well, if they graze that back off, then it's stunted again. And But if you let that from the roots come up and then the photosynthesis starts mm. out, it gets it a boost. and it. it there's some go.
1: chemistry and yeah. biology going on yeah. here, that's, photosynthesis that's, and starches. That's the and, science, yeah. bro, that,
0: that they've told me. Yeah. You know, I'm not a scientist. I just do what they told me.
1: But I think it is important, too, you were listening to that stuff. You yes. weren't just going out and doing it the same old way that you had always done it or right. your dad or done it or right. your grandpa or whoever.
0: Right. Because when I was growing up, you just turned them out. And that was the, the pasture field. And, of course, they eat the choicest Tastiest stuff first. Yep. And again and again and again. And the rank stuff goes to seed and pretty soon all you got is that stuff. Yep. So,
1: yeah. so field field management. Yep. It's a pretty old system though, uh, yeah. managing cattle on ground. That's yeah. the other thing. Yeah. It's it's not like it's a, a new idea. This has been going on for millennia
0: yeah (laughs) and of course i'm in the wet side of the state you know if you're in eastern washington it's a complete different ballpark yeah uh i don't know how they do that in the sagebrush areas (laughs) yeah
1: checking in real quickly to thank our sponsors uh dairy farmers of washington for one has been a faithful supporter of this podcast since the beginning um, and they continue to be wadairy.org is their website. They share a lot of great information there, uh, similar to what we do, stories about farms and, and the dairy farmers that produce the delicious dairy products uh, from Washington State. They also share a lot about you know, why those products are superior quality and good for you, and just lots of information about nutrition uh, and recipe ideas and you name it check it out wadary.org also Mana insurance group supporting the podcast love those folks that's where i do my insurance stuff they take great care of me they were founded actually by a high school classmate of mine and he's still uh, their leader i know quite a few folks on their team great folks very trustworthy manna group.com check them out online now back to our conversation at the Washington State Fairgrounds in Puyallup with Rex Ogden on the Real Food, Real People podcast. Being a small beef producer in western Washington or really anywhere in the state, how did that work for you? I've been hearing, and, and we've talked a lot about it on the podcast with other producers, it's really hard to get kill dates and oh, you know get things into the butcher and the USDA issue and how do you market it and who's, you know... Yep. What's your take on that whole situation?
0: It's getting harder all the time. I've gotten to where I don't sell anything at the auction if I don't absolutely have to. I have a cousin who lives just down the road from me, and he raises Herefords. And him and his son, they have butchered, put it that way, up to 30 animals. And they're all sold before they're butchered. But the thing is, he's got to schedule that kill date when they butchered last year's kill date
1: a year in advance
0: yeah there's to just call him he says well i can't do anything for six months they're booked up that tight and what we need is another butcher shop we used to have two there in cowlitz county and the one marijuana was more profitable and they (laughs) turned it into a marijuana grow and yeah now he's sold it and got clear out of there but uh, well and and we needed that the it's cut ha- and wrap,
1: too. It's heavily regulated. Yeah. A lot of cost yep. that goes into meeting all that. Yep, And it's hard work. And yep. it's a special skill. It's an art. Oh, yeah. You know, I have heard from, you know, Me. butchers here on, on this podcast talking about it. And it's like, I can see why people don't get into it, but they should. Yeah. Uh, Matt's you know?
0: meets there, and he's actually out Rose Valley. But it's Kelso.
1: Yeah.
0: He built a new place in Longview where you come pick up your stuff. Now I thought that what he was going to do was have Waltz Meats, which is in Woodland, and it's a USDA inspected slaughter. Mm-hmm. You could take your animal there, have it butchered, and then he would take it to Matt's and cut and wrap it, and I could sell it like. Is that a way you could
1: sell it by the cut? Yes. Rather than having to buy half a cow yes. with the custom exempt. Yes.
0: Yeah. And now you understand that, so yeah. you've been, well, I've been learning. To, I've been learning on this yeah.
1: podcast as I talk to people about. So this. That,
0: that's why. But I, it hasn't happened yet, and that's what mm-hmm. we need. Because I wouldn't mind holding mine for another six months and fattening them up and even selling them grass-fed because mm-hmm. with good grass, they grow good and they get yeah. fat. But
1: Well, and that's a better way to sell it directly into the local yes. market. Yes. So the whole thing stays right here rather than just yeah. selling it into the system and who knows where things go.
0: Yeah. I watched quite a few uh, YouTube videos, and one of them yeah. is the best just a few acres farm he's from new york mm. and that's what he does yeah only he raises dexter cows and that, mm. that's his selling point yeah. they're, they're better than anything else <laughs>
1: <laughs> what kind of cow cattle do you raise
0: well, they're crossbred i have six they were out of a limousine or a um, red angus bull and they look mm. like red angus cows mm. and the rest of them I've got a black Angus one, and I've got a black white face one, and I've got a heifer coming up that's a black white face, and I'm going to keep her. And, but we, right now, my cousin loans me a young bull every year to breed mine because mm. he needs to open his heifers that he's going to butcher about two months before they're slaughtered so that they settle down. They don't come into heat. Mm. And so I get to use his bull, which keeps him away from them, Right, and then gets it back we work really well together yeah (laughs) hey
1: heck of a deal
0: him and i have always been well we raised across the road from each other so
1: well there's another thing that that farmer knowledge about those natural systems yeah how that all works and how the animals behave and how their bodies work and all that yeah yeah you can't just jump in and do that without any background or well that's,
0: that's right if you're wanting to start out from scratch you've never been on a farm before. There's a lot of, well, I'll put it this way, it's a steep learning curve. Yeah. Now, there are other things that you could get into that aren't as intense or whatever as, yep. as cattle. And cattle is probably the poorest return on your dollar, mm. you know. It takes a lot of money to, to do it, a lot of ground, Uh Five acres, you could run maybe two cows, but you better buy two steers and butcher, butcher them in the fall, you know.
1: Right. That's one of the criticisms, though. People say, oh, it takes so much land to grow beef. Yeah. But what kind of land are you running your cattle on? I mean, is it cropland or is it?
0: You, you couldn't crop it. Uh,
1: and that I, I think that's make, an important part that doesn't get recognized.
0: I do make hay on it, and yep. I have made hay on that steepest piece, but I shouldn't have.
1: You almost roll your tractor over?
0: Well, you go up and down the hill, but the baler pushes you down the hill, <laughs> yeah. and, you, and one time I spun out going up. But, so uh, this
1: is r- rough, steep terrain. It
0: is steep ground, but it that's what my great-grandfather bought back in 1923. Yeah, yeah. but
1: cows the cows don't naturally care. they probably like walking hills yeah, and stuff they and they, they don't care browse around and
0: it's uh gentle enough with a low uh ground pressure track or low low center of gravity tractor put it that mm-hmm. way i can spread fertilizer on it. i can brush hog if i have to i can pasture harrow which keeps spreads around the maneuver and keeps mm-hmm. things flat and uh, and then of course the rest of the farm is in timber so we just logged a big chunk this this year mm. so that's my retirement i'd there always said that was my retirement yep. and i watched them trees grow and grow and grow and then there's a the big that no mills are bigger we'll cut them
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow wow <clears throat> well that's farming too then yeah it's just a lot longer term yeah harvesting right. those and then it, now this log is probably getting replanted oh yeah it's already again. it's
0: already replanted but it it opens up a lot of field edge that used to be in the shade either the morning or the evening. True. It's going to get a lot more sun. So, the hay in that one field is going to dry a whole lot faster yeah, than Yeah, that'll, nice.
1: <laughs> that'll be nice. That'll be nice. Or maybe it'll get too dry and then you'll need to irrigate.
0: No, no, I got no water to irrigate. So, no irrigation? No, no irrigation. As a matter of fact, usually it dries up enough in August that we end up having to feed hay. So, any leftover hay from last year, we get moved to where... I can feed it in the fall. And, uh, and then there's another point, too, that getting a large animal vet now is getting to be a problem. Mm. If you're going to sell a heifer as a breeding animal, they have to be bangs, vaccinated. And to do that, the vet has to do it. Mm. That's one of the vet things that I can't do myself. We do most of the other things ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we've learned that. That's another learning curve that a new person would have to learn. Yeah, animal health stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How how to give injections and what to look for for this or that, you know. Yeah.
1: Be the doctor for your You,
0: you got to you've got to be your own doctor. My my vet is still alive, but he's retired. He's I think he's 90. Yeah.
1: And when you're talking about injections, you're talking about things to keep them healthy. Keep, yes. Make sure they, you know, if they get sick, not like injecting them with hormones no. or something. I mean, I, there's that perception out there with beef. You see no hormones. I'm thinking, well, yeah. I, what beef I, do, you I've know. I've
0: never done that. There is a growth hormone, and it's a little pill they put in the neck somewhere. And uh, they say, oh, God, you, you can't sell them as uh, natural beef. Then. Right, right. Well, really it doesn't do anything to them it makes their muscles it doesn't give them any more muscle but it makes the muscle cells bigger so it looks like they're bigger more weight but i've never even tried to mess with that why not we give them oh because i just i'm too lazy for one thing (laughs) (laughs) you can give them vaccines there's a seven way i think there's an 11 way now and it's got black leg and I don't know, all the different things that animals would get. And it's just like we take for measles or mumps or chicken pox, you know. Yep.
1: That, yeah, exactly. And so, pe-
0: people who would complain about those injections don't understand what they're doing.
1: Yeah, that's true, what the point of it is. I, I get worried about that because people want say they want no antibiotics in their milk or their meat, uh-huh. which I understand, which it's not allowed. If right. anything tests right. for any of that, right. it's thrown in the garbage. right. But there are people who are then raising animals with none of that. And to me, it's like, well, if I was sick, I'd want to get antibiotics. You know, not that yeah. that should go into the food system. Yeah. You keep them quarantined, you yeah. know, whether it's beef or, uh, or dairy until, until it's passed through, until it's right. out of their system. Yeah. But, but what about treating animals when they're uh, sick? We should be able to do that.
0: I've been real lucky because I, I consider myself having a closed herd. The mm. only thing that my cousin has some cattle across the fence. And then I borrow that bull from him. But other than that, my animals are a uh, closed herd. They don't, I don't go buy replacements and come in. And I've been real lucky with disease. Maybe it's because I got to walk up and down them hills and it works and, and harder. And
1: exercise, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Stay yeah. healthy. Yeah. That's yeah. what I, I should probably have a house on a hill and make myself walk up and so I can get some exercise every day. Yeah. I don't get enough, my doctor says. Anyway. Boy,
0: I get enough. When you got to go clear (laughs) at the top of the hill to check something. Yeah. Anymore, I huff and puff. Yeah. Didn't used to bother me when I was younger.
1: (laughs) No big deal back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we are here at the Washington State Fairgrounds in Puyallup having this chat because the State Grange Convention is happening here. Yep. How did you get involved in Grange?
0: (laughs) I've been involved in Grange since I was about nine years old. No kidding. We had a junior Grange in Castle Rock at the Sunnyside Grange. And my family has been Grange members. My dad and his two brothers were mm-hmm. both members of one Grange or another there. And so I started, I didn't, st- you could start when you were five, but I didn't start till I was, I was uh, nine. And so basically I grew up in the Grange. Mm-hmm. We had our junior Grange meeting, which was the kids, the same night that the adults had their meeting upstairs. And so we would get our meeting done, and we'd go play around. And then when they were done upstairs, they'd come downstairs to have their snacks afterwards, refreshments, I guess. Yep. And we'd go upstairs and get to run around that big, empty <laughs> hall and play my So this I, would have been what, 60s? Uh, yeah. See, I graduated in 1970, so in 69, I probably joined about 60, somewhere in there.
1: So what 89. is— what is grange because i think a Good. lot of people think of it in terms of back then mm-hmm. but it's still a thing to this day
0: the grange is a community service organization now back mm. then when it was originally formed was to help the farmers recover from the effects of the civil war mm. it was formed in in yeah 1869 and we helped farmers all the way up through uh, railroad laws. Uh, the Grange actually sponsored uh, to have school buses be painted yellow, uh, mm. rural free delivery. In, the, in Washington, D.C. at the uh, Smithsonian, there is a section on rural free delivery and the Grange influence on that. Mm. But then you go on up. We sponsored initiatives. That's why we have PUDs. And that's why we had the blanket primary, which got thrown out eventually. We used it for forty years or something. And so then we pushed that initiative to have the top two So it's the
1: Grange that's been behind some of this stuff. It's been behind that state politics. Yep.
0: We're nonpartisan. We don't do party stuff, but we do issues, any issues that we think are good. And that's what we're doing in there today or this week. Mm-hmm. is setting our policy.
1: And so it's still connected to farming though and yes. rural
0: communities, right? Yep, you're supposed to have an interest in agriculture. Mm. And if you go to the grocery store and buy something, to eat, you have an interest in agriculture.
1: That's true. That's
0: how I Well, I that's say that.
1: that's the basis of this podcast. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the people who produce food yeah. and everybody who eats food. Yeah. Hint hint everybody. <laughs> Should <laughs> unless there's somebody out there who's figured out how to live without food.
0: I don't care if you're vegan or you eat <laughs> Doesn't meat. Doesn't matter. You're still eating food. You're eating food,
1: and this has to do with you.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Producing food. What do you right. What do you think? It, I mean, you live down there in Southwest Washington, so yeah. you're kind of like me up in Northwest Washington. We're a little far farther away from that urban center, mm-hmm. but not maybe like some folks in Eastern Washington. So, we see what happens, say, in Seattle, and we see yeah. that disconnect. Yeah. What's your take on, on what's happening with farming and and then how that interplays with urban folks?
0: Well, I think the pendulum's starting to swing the other way to where the people in the city are starting to see that, hey, we got to protect this stuff, especially in Seattle or King County. Yeah. You know, you're starting to see more, oh, what do they call them, conservation easements or. Yep you know what I'm talking about where
1: protecting farmland
0: right you're protecting that farmland to where you can't put houses on it you've got to keep it in farmland but you wouldn't have to do those things if farming was profitable enough to Mm. keep it in farming in the first place
1: so the the best way to protect it is to make sure that it's still profitable make
0: sure it's profitable for the farmer
1: yeah why isn't it sometimes now
0: I don't know is really. That
1: market stuff is it that contract kind of farming? Farms getting bigger. Well, or... for one thing, what what is it?
0: America has the cheapest food I think of any country in the world, and we have to keep it cheap. So you got to cut the price of everything all the time, and yeah. so there's you get you get what you can get, and of course the farmers on the bottom of the totem pole. At the bottom lung of the rat, lung, rung of the ladder, maybe you should say. Yeah. And he's got no place else to get his money, you know. Yeah. He's got nothing to pass on down. Yeah. He's got to sell his product at whatever he can get. And we're not unionized. I guess maybe that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So what changes that? What do you think needs to happen?
0: I don't know. people need to understand that they need to pay more, for, more at the grocery store. But then I hate to see the middleman getting more just because the price went up, the grocery store, the middleman's getting more.
1: Yeah. And how much of that ends up making it to the farmer? Yes.
0: Yes. How much makes it to the farmer?
1: And the problem is the the larger, you know, the 30,000 foot view here is not enough makes it to the farmer. If mm-hmm. You're talking about yep. it's hard to be profitable. Yep. Farm goes out of business. And then, like you say, they're still trying to protect that property, Yeah. but inevitably, a lot of that is going to get paved, yeah. developed, whatever it is.
0: Eventually. Even I, they, they have these conservation buffers and these uh, easements where you can't do it. Eventually, if there's nothing there, because nobody can make a profit on it, it's going to turn into houses or something.
1: Yeah. Mm. So yeah, eventually. So yeah, my question for anybody thinking about that is: so what's better? Yeah, for the environment, for the community,
0: oh, the farm, the ground, the you know, grass growing, whatever, is better than than asphalt. Right, and, and, and that's runoff. where I think we need to be careful not to be
1: too picky about. I mean, our farmers need to be doing a good job, mm-hmm. yeah. but if we make it so hard and the rules are so unbelievably yeah. picky,
0: yeah. I, I shouldn't mention, away. but I have springs. I get my water from a spring, and that mm. creek goes down there. And I've got a little creek runs down there, and i got a little creek runs down there. And if you had a 200-foot buffer on each one of them, I only got a little skinny piece of that field that I could use. And yet, it's not hurting the salmon or anything. It's They can't come up there. It's too steep. And it goes down there, yep. and it drops right straight down. So...
1: Yeah, because that was an idea floated a few times recently at at the state
0: level. Oh, yeah. The governor's proposal, yes. The governor and the tribe's proposal.
1: So what would that do to to farms in that kind of a situation?
0: Put them out of business. Well, I could plant trees there, but then you can't manage the trees. I went through, uh, this be back when I was raising chickens. Um, They had a... And, of course, it was after Mount St. Helens blew, so there was a lot of stuff changed. It was called the Arkansas Watershed something, I can't remember, the rest of Anyway, they went up these cricks, and they uh, looked at them and see what they had, and I, and I was on that committee, and hmm. so I could see what they were wanting to do, and... When the mountain blew, it plugged up all the culverts. So the water backed mm. up here, and it killed all the trees and stuff. As a matter of fact, the whole fields were down full of water there. Mm. Long enough that it killed all the trees. And so then they're talking about, well, we need to shade those streams. And I says, well, why don't you plant cottonwoods, those poplar cottonwoods, yeah. on the south side of the stream. They'll go up real fast and they'll shade that stream but then you need to plant in between that and then let us take those out oh no we can't do that whatever you put there has got to stay there you know there's no managing
1: and that and that's crazy because you want shade as quickly as you can as for the stream keep the water cool yeah but long term you don't want cottonwoods there right that's not the native species they
0: want cedar trees there but of course, the again, beaver comes in and eats the cedar trees before they get big enough to do anything, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, you want cedar and probably dug fir and, yeah. and you know the native species, yeah. but uh, yeah, and and yet these rules that maybe they're f- uh, attempting to achieve something good actually end up, yeah. Making it not possible. Because they
0: say, you you know, you can't you can't manage it. Well, I'm not going to plant it if I can't manage it.
1: Right. So you don't get nothing. And then it doesn't happen.
0: It had blackberries and that shaded the creek, I guess.
1: <laughs> needs to be more talking and listening to each other and working together yeah, to do yeah. these kinds of things. Because folks like yourself who've been on the land, know how the land works, know how the animals work, yep. all of that stuff. Yep. You've got a lot that can go into how this could work really well. Mm-hmm. And everybody could be happy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, that's what you guys do at Grange, though, right? That's what we do at Grange. We These resolutions and all the stuff that goes into our policy book started in a local Grange. Mm. Somebody didn't like something, they wrote a resolution, they bring it here, and they pass, They got to pass it there first. And then they bring it here, and if it gets passed on the floor, then it becomes our policy. So we're a grassroots organization. I don't You're know democratic how
1: democratic within your own organization yes. too, voting on yes. stuff and not everybody has to agree, but that's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Actually, boy, it's been pretty smooth in there today. <laughs> I've seen him take an hour on one little people go back word and forth. Change. And, that, yeah. So a lot
1: of people aren't familiar with Grange and, and yeah. all the effort that gets put into reviewing laws yeah. and policies and recommending things and working with lawmakers. Yeah.
0: But it's one thing we've always said is the reason the Grange is still here today is because it's a frater- fraternity, mm. a fraternal organ of the Grange. And that has kept, kept it going mm-hmm. through hard times and whatnot. And to me, it's just, I'd be lost if I didn't have a Grange to go to. Mm. Well,
1: and from what I'm hearing about it, nonpartisan, you know, focused on grassroots yep. ideas. Yep. Um, not about going to one extreme or the other, but collaborating, working together. Yes. This is what a lot of people are hungry for. With as polarized as our society and our politics yeah. are, yeah, I think I'm, I'm hoping. You talk about the pendulum swinging; that the pendulum will swing that way soon. And I think it. I think people are hungry for that because they're exhausted uh-huh. by yeah. the the divided nature oh, yes. right. of our society right now. Right, and the Grange is is an example of the antidote to that and
0: we're still trying to stay in the middle of the road right yeah yeah
1: well as it, a lot of people may think it's antiquated but i th- it's time for a resurgence <laughs> to, of the grange and yes, organizations like to that. me
0: we're still viable and we're still a good thing for for society and uh, it's just a matter of getting people to come and talk to me and i'll sign yeah. you up
1: Well, thank you for sharing your story with us here on the podcast.
0: Hey, you're quite welcome. I appreciate it. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast.
1: These are the stories of the people who grow your food.